0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ethan Besser-Frederick, the host of the channel. Today, we're talking to several interesting guests about a book collection that they've edited together. Uh, This is Thomas Field Jr., Vani Petina, and Stella Krepp, an uh, international book written internationally. Uh, So first of all, let me welcome all of you to the show. Thank you all so much for being here this morning, in my time at least. Well, thank, thank you. you so
1: much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for the invitation.
0: Uh, maybe just starting with the order in which your uh, your chapters appear in the book. So starting with uh, Thomas, uh, could you introduce yourself a little bit? Tell us uh, what you what you're working on. What what um, program or university you're affiliated with?
2: Sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm an associate professor at Embry-Riddle uh, College of Security and Intelligence in Arizona, where I've been for about ten years. And my interests are uh, U.S. foreign policy. Mainly, um, I came at uh, these topics through uh, Cold War studies. Uh, as, as I got into uh, U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, uh, I I'd spent several years uh, living in Bolivia, researching my first book, which was on Bolivia in the 1960s. Uh, and now I'm working on a book about Bolivia during the era of Che Guevara. So I've shifted from basically U.S. foreign policy and Cold War studies more and more into Latin American studies, at least uh, for my current project. Uh, which is kind of the the opposite side of U.S. foreign policy, where I'm dealing with uh, uh, revolutionary movements in Latin America, Cuban foreign policy in Bolivia uh, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, so that's kind of my trajectory that brought me to this project.
0: Well, thank you, Tom. Uh, Vani, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself next?
3: Yeah. Well, uh, I'm on... In- Currently, an associate professor at uh, the Center for Historical Studies at El Colegio de Mexico, Mexico City. Um, I've been here for approximately ten years, um, and uh, my first project, my PhD, was a history of uh, U.S. or, better to say, Cuban-U.S. relations uh, between 1933. Um, and the triumph of the Cuban revolution. Um, and I'm currently working on a research project on um, Mexico's foreign policy and the links uh, between, between the foreign policy and um, the project of economic modernization mm-hmm. of the country. Uh, so it's a project that looks at uh, uh, Mexico, uh, Mexico's global uh, foreign policy, and uh, I, I think that this was for me probably uh, the link that brought me to this uh, edited edited volume.
0: Well, thank you. And then Stella, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself as well?
1: Sure. Um, I'm an associate researcher at, at the University of Bern in Switzerland, um, and I received my PhD in history at the University of Cambridge in the UK. I'm originally German and Greek. So, add into this international flair. Um, I would say uh, my research lies at the intersection of Latin American history, international relations, and global South history. And I'm particularly interested in political narratives and how they construct political identities, and especially uh, regional identities. And this is also what I did for my PhD, um, where I worked on the Organization of American States and inter-American relations from the 1940s to the 1990s. And this is a book that's currently under review with Cambridge University Press. Um, In my current project, um, I look at development in Latin America in the 1950s and 60s, um, in Brazil, Cuba, and the British Caribbean. Um, And so I look at revolution, reform, and progress in three different settings. Um, And this is also what led me to... um, the edited book now because I think this is the crucial junction of history where Latin America starts to think about being part of the third world and how it connects to this decolonizing world.
0: Well, thank you so much all for um, making time today to to talk through this book with us, especially because uh, you all are the editors, but the book is a long and very detailed collection of articles from all over the world, from topics completely spreading the span of the Cold War in Latin America. It's uh, broken into two parts with 14 chapters, but let's start first with the introduction and what brought this book together, what the core argument of the book is, and, and why it's structured in these two parts. So if we could all talk through a little bit what, the, what that process was and what the, what the book is about largely.
1: Um, I'm happy to take this. So I think the origins of the book started at a conference I organized in Bern, Switzerland in 2014, um, together with a colleague from Brazil. Um, And it was on a a conference on Latin America in a global context where I think we met for the first time. Um, And I think we realized that we had very similar interests, but also challenges in our research, how to contextualize our research that was Latin American history, but also global South history. Um, And then what we did, um, we assembled a number of scholars from Europe and the Americas through a call for papers. Um, I think we got about 50 um, applications. And then we carefully selected 14 of these contributors um, to form this book.
3: Yeah. And, um, And then we kept up the hard work basically for five years. So for five years, we have been working on every single detail um of, of this book um, reviewing chapters debating uh, among us on about uh, what parts of every single chapter should be uh, changed fixed improved um, and um, we work on uh, on something that I think it's it's a it's an interesting feature of the book pictures um, images um coming from several archives uh, all around uh, Latina Latin America it, it was quite a, a like a hard work to collect all these uh, pictures and images and then the introduction uh, which took quite a long time because Stella was um, was saying uh, we didn't have a, a theoretical framework Uh, to present uh, uh, a book on Latin America and the Third World. Because uh, as far as I know, this is, uh, I'm not sure if if it's the first, but certainly one of the first attempts to uh, offer uh, like the the world picture, uh, an attempt to offer the world picture of the relations between uh, Latin America and, and, and the Third World. So we really needed to build from scratch a uh, sort of uh, a theoretical framework uh, to put all these chapters in context. And that took a uh, really long time, many meetings, many drafts and and I think that probably the reader can appreciate it uh, reading uh, reading it, reading the introduction.
2: Yeah. <clears throat> so I, I agree with my colleagues uh, that um, it was it was an exciting, uh, and challenging project um, and I think as as the only u s born and u s uh, sort of based uh, editor, uh, I think you know one thing that I notice about the project that that maybe uh, that maybe um, uh, Stella and Vanny t- I don't know if they take it for granted, but um you know it it, it does have a strong sort of European flair in terms of uh, you know european based Latin American studies tends to uh, Put the region's international relations uh, already on a slightly more global um, canvas, and so um, the fact that uh, it was um, sort of the project was sort of um, born at this conference that Stella organized in Bern um, with a lot of European participation makes makes quite a lot of sense. And when we did our call for papers, some of the best uh, proposals uh, came from uh, European based scholars. Uh, you know, who, who don't necessarily ignore U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, uh, but they contextualize U.S. foreign policy in such a way that uh, Latin America becomes much more of a global actor, uh, sometimes a failed global actor, uh, as we may discuss when we get to our, our particular chapters. But, um, you know, th- there are also some successes in terms of Latin American global activism. So uh, we write in the introduction that uh, this, this book is really a, um, a concerted effort to uh, break down the historiographical Monroe Doctrine, uh, which was uh, something actually noted by uh, a scholar, uh, Tanya Harmer, at the conference in Bern. And we, we took it upon ourselves to try to do that, to try to break down this historiographical Monroe Doctrine. Uh, I should say that um, aside from the conference in Bern, st- uh, Vanny and I studied together temporarily. Uh, v- Vanny was a postdoctoral scholar uh, in, at, in London uh, when I was doing my, my doctoral degree at the London School of Economics. Uh, and we were studying there at the at the uh, London School of Economics Ideas Think Tank, which already has a very strong sort of uh, global South um, uh, uh, emphasis. A lot of the scholars working there uh, over the years have 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 looked at uh, their case studies in Africa or Latin America or uh, Asia or the Middle East as basically as as, as versions of, of of global of global South history, basically. And so that's what we try to do.
0: I think that all of what each of you said really carries through the the book and all of the separate chapters, that it's not just a a parallel set of histories that happen to happen at the same time. But uh, as you you say on page seven of the introduction, that the book does more than just discuss Latin America's relation with the broader third world. It rearticulates Latin American history as third world history. And I think this tonal shift really gives the chapters some really unique feel. And I would agree, definitely agree with Thomas, at least in the U.S. studies of Latin American history, that sometimes it can be lacking. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad to have this book enter, the, enter the, uh, the, the list of works that people can access and use to inform their work. Um, the, the book itself is organized into two parts with the chapters about evenly split between them, I believe. Uh, could could you explain a little bit what readers could expect to find in part one versus part two and, and what the decision was to organize it in such a way?
1: So we struggled quite a bit to to kind of structure this book. And we we decided in the end to divide the book in two conceptual halves, uh, one focusing on third world nationalism, which we sort of located uh, from the 1940s to the 1970s, um, and a second one on third world internationalism. Now, third world nationalism is a period we describe as a more moderate iteration of third world politics um, that was mainly used to, for the gains uh, for the nation state. Um, so that's why we call it nationalism. So it's nationalist politics that use the third world for their own um, uses. Um, Third world internationalism, internationalism, which uh, we say is particularly strong in the 1970s and with Cuba, is a much more radical international third world project that really embraces the international aspect of it. Um, And there um, the chapters talk about, uh, for example, um, the new international economic order, um, solidarity politics, um, of course, Cuba – so um, I guess it's two sides of a coin that are interlinked, uh, but also in some ways are separate.
0: Well, thank you. And each of your three chapters appear in the first part of the book, um, but, but I think they still give us a good sense of what the, the book accomplishes. Uh, perhaps we could begin with chapter two, which is the chapter that Thomas wrote on Bolivia between Washington, Prague, and Havana, the limits of nationalism in 1960 to 64, uh, Thomas, can you tell us a little bit about the the constraints and the options that the Bolivian revolutionaries had in this time period?
2: Sure, uh, and and just to um, introduce the chapter, uh, I'll just uh, express agreement with with the way my colleague Stella described the two the two parts of the book. Um, there's a certain um, not just a you know the the the, thir- the the stories that we that we write about third world nationalism. Aren't just mo- more moderate stories than than the ones um, that are that are narrated about uh, third world internationalism, but they're actually, I, I think that there's a there's a poignant sense of of disappointment in the first half of the book. I was talking with a colleague who who, who was reading chapters one and two and three, and um, he sort of expressed to me that he expected to find these heroic tales of like Latin American nationalists, like you know, um, winning their uh, winning their, their their global diplomatic debates and the first seven chapters um really demonstrate in some ways like the limits of 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 a nationalist um sort of political project um after after world war II. and and my chapter is actually titled like the limits of nationalism right so uh in the argument um that i put forth in the chapter really it's that um that uh, it, it tries to resolve this sort of ongoing uh debate not just in latin america but throughout you know in in iran with mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, in uh, Vietnam, with Ho Chi Minh, you know, uh, what what does it mean to sort of try to define um, national liberation leaders, uh, you know, as as nationalist or as internationalist or as anti colonial Marxist, right? I mean, you know, these are these are all different sort of. Um, there's a lot of political weight given to how we define uh, third world revolutionaries or third world um, liberation forces, and. In, at least in the United States, due to you know the Cold War politics of McCarthyism, um, and to some extent perhaps also in in, in certain liberal um sort of political projects in, in Western Europe, there's a tendency to see the nationalist in the Third World as uh somehow good or noble, uh, because they, they, they just care about, you know, taking care of their people, and the internationalist as somehow being um a, a sort of a perverted uh sort of um, corrupted version of third world nationalism that becomes more interested in foreign policy than in developing their own country, and because these are sort of low income countries, there's a certain shaming of third world internationalism that takes place in sort of anti communist circles of the United States and Europe. And so, um, I think what I what I what I look at in the book is 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 how, in a way, and I think that probably uh, um, uh, Stella and Vanni will also talk about this in there in there when they talk about their chapters, but. Third world nationalism actually receives quite a lot of support, uh, at least in theory, from the United States. Um, the Bolivian case that I write about, you know, the United States really bankrolled uh, the, the revolutionary nationalist project in Bolivia uh, because they recognized it as inherently moderate, um, you know, deeply sort of rooted in the, in, the, in the middle class, a sort of, you know, um, bourgeois, you know, what, what I write in, in the chapter said so there was a, this bourgeois allergy to uh, to to communism and to peasant and worker politics. That um, if 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 a nationalist project such as the Bolivian Nationalist Party seeks to empower workers or, or peasants, it's within a sort of nationalizing project that um, uh, sort of clearly shows sort of a lack of solidarity with 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 other projects. So I write in the book, sort of using Cuban documents and using. Um, documents from, Czechos, from Czechos, the former Czechoslovakia uh, to sort of triangulate with my US, with the US documents I have like you know what Bolivian nationalism represented. Um, you sort of see a project that gives a lot of lip service to third world solidarity, gives a lot of lip service really to tolerance for, um, uh, tolerance for communism even right? Uh, communi- uh, tolerance for the Bolivian Communist Party. Tolerance, even for Cuban, um, Cuban activity in Bolivia, but in the end, uh, sort of underneath, and and, and in many ways, uh, sort of in secret conversations with with the West, with with Britain, with the United States, they are you know, actively selling out those those same third world principles. Uh, because in in the end, these third, these sort of middle class third world nationalists, at least in the Bolivian case, and I think also probably Stella and Vanny can confirm to some extent in the Mexican and Brazilian case. There, there, there's a deep conservatism to these middle class these middle class revolutionaries and um, and they sort of serve uh, in a way they sort of serve a purpose for the United States uh, that wants to uh, find a way to modernize countries away from feudalism away from sort of repressive um, economic systems of you know plantation feudalism without you know falling into what the United States sees as basically radical governments that have solidarity with the Soviet Union or have solidarity with Cuba um, so I can go into more details about the chapters, but we don't have a lot of time. So I'll, I'll go ahead and pass it back to you, Ethan, and, uh, and, and we can move on unless you have some specific questions about the chapter.
0: Well, I, I appreciate your, your consideration of, uh, your fellow authors and making sure they get time. Uh, I think I want to zero in on just one particular aspect of this Bolivian incident, because I think, um, each one of the chapters has really great particular moments of the story where, uh, particular symbols or, or conflicts or decisions hold uh, an immense amount of weight, maybe an outlandish amount of weight. Uh, this is especially true with the um, tractors for Vani. But, but in, in your chapter, Thomas, there's a very controversial smelter from, the, from Czechoslovakia that somehow almost cre- that, that, that somehow creates a crisis in Bolivia and really creates a lot of worries in the United States. Could you just tell us a little bit about this very controversial smelter?
2: Uh yeah absolutely and 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 the smelter story actually reveals quite a lot about um I what what I argue in the chapter is sort of the limits of you know bourgeois nationalism or or like middle class nationalism as a liberatory political project in like low income um global south countries you know in the period we're looking at referred to proudly as third world uh movement countries um and the smelter project uh is actually a close um, kin to uh, Soviet aid offers to nationalist Bolivia. The Bolivian Revolution occurred in 1952 um, while Stalin was actually still alive. And it occurred sort of really um, with nationalist and Trotskyist revolutionaries who uh, really distanced themselves from the Soviet Union. But by the late 1950s, uh, Nikita Khrushchev um, had reoriented Soviet foreign policy to be more tolerant of, of you know, middle-class nationalism what the soviets previously sort of poo pooed as as bourgeois you know um petty 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 bourgeois nationalism and so the soviets and their and and other soviet bloc countries begin to offer bo- nationalist bolivia um aid uh in the late 50s and 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 really intensifying in the early 60s the bolivian uh, government the the middle-class revolutionary nationalists, who really disliked the bolivian oligarchy absolutely you know Take, take away their wealth, take away their land, um, but has also a, a very much an allergy to, um, you know, to sort of st- straight up communism and and um, sort of play into Cold War McCarthyism, actually. And so by the time the Soviets um, changed their tune and began to offer aid to, you know, na- third world nationalists like, like Nasser in Egypt or like Sukarno in Indonesia or, or Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana. They're also doing this with the Bolivian nationalists. And the Smelter Project is a Czechoslovak um, version of that. And really, it it, it inspires a lot of um, Bolivian sort of romanticism about freeing themselves from raw material exploitation as their only um, source of foreign exchange and uh, it becomes a very popular project in, in, in terms of Bolivian political discourse. And it, in a way, what's ironic about Soviet aid and the Czech um, smelter project itself, um, which the Nationalist Party never signed, they sent you know, mission after mission to Prague and to Moscow to supposedly negotiate. But the Nationalist Party was telling the United States the whole time, uh, including sort of CIA sources, basically, you look at CIA documents and the CIA is Letting the White House know, the Kennedy White House and later the Johnson White House, that the Nationalist Party has promised the CIA that it will never culminate these um, these sort of um, economic uh, deals that will break raw material exploita- exploitation as Bolivia's only source of, of foreign exchange. That it, you know, instead of culminating deals with the Soviet bloc, which is sort of a very radical step, the Bolivian nationalists um, take the advice of. Uh, Wall Street consultants who are sort of paid for by USAID and the World Bank to tell them that, you know, Bolivia, for example, they tell them that Bolivia, because of the altitude, can never have uh, processing <laughs> can, can never process their own raw materials. and and they believe this stuff. I mean, of course, the, the, these great consultants aren't spending a lot of time in Bolivia. They're just writing up whatever reports that you know their bosses are gonna gonna be happy with. And so um it, it's really a sort of it's a very difficult chapter. It was a very difficult chapter to write. And I think to read, because of the, uh, of the you know, disappointment over and over again, um, it was actually the Bolivian military who came in in 1965 and began to finally ink the deal with the Czechoslovak- Czechoslovaks. And actually throughout the book, we see some ironic um, sort of uh, counterintuitive developments where militaries in, in, in Latin America actually show more backbone when it comes to a more sincere version of third world nationalism, I mean, a, a, a sort of more international solidarity within that. Um, uh, just briefly, a uh, uh, the Cuban um, version for the Bolivian nationalists, the Cuban version of the Czech Smelter Project, which is just sort of all for show, um, is um, Bolivia's apparent willingness to let Cuba use Bolivian territory to organize guerrilla movements that will uh, launch in Argentina, Peru, and elsewhere. Um, this is what the Bolivians tell the Cuban government, sort of through the Bolivian Communist Party. The Bolivian government is supposedly open to Cuban guerrilla operations. But secretly, the Bolivian government is telling Peruvian and Argentine security forces sort of what's happening. And so these Cuban um, operations all fail because of, uh, in, in many ways, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but partly because of the double dealing of the Bolivian government. What uh, Renata Keller has a book that, uh, to some extent, helped to inspire Our work, along with Pierre Iglesias and uh, Eric Gettig and James Hirschberg, there are a lot of sort of antecedents to this project that were floating out there. We wanted to bring all this together in a theoretical way. But uh, Renata Keller, in her book on uh, Mexico's Cold War, she writes that Mexico's foreign policy um, uh, toward Cuba sort of tolerance of Cuba was like a was a was a foreign policy for domestic consumption. Um, and of course, I go a little bit further in my book. I think that, it, that the Bolivian nationalists were never going to actually um, be honest and, and show solidarity with Cuba or the Soviet Union because they were, you know, deep down anti-communists, actually right in the beginning of the chapter that they actually supported Germany in World War II. You know, that if, it, they might have been radicals, but if, if they were radicals, they were radicals of the, of the sort of um, far right more than the, more than the far left.
0: Well, thank you. I think that 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 demonstrates a lot of the complexities of this particular moment and the ambiguities of third world nationalism, at least in Bolivia, but but I think also generally for the region as well. Uh, Perhaps now we can move to Vani's chapter on Mexican and Soviet encounters in the early 1960s, Uh, Tractors of Discord, which is maybe one of my favorite chapter titles uh, that I've read before. Vani, can you tell us a little bit about Mexican-Soviet encounters and these very tricky tractors?
3: Basically, uh, this chapter uh, tells the story uh, of a bunch of uh, Soviet tractors uh, which Mexico bought uh, to the Soviet Union uh, during uh, the presidency of Adolfo Lopez Mateo uh, between 1958 and 1964. Uh, As the chapter shows, um, these tractors um, were both uh, as part of um, a broader Mexican strategy to diversify uh, its economic and political uh, relations. Uh, um, so during, during this time, Mexico um, sort of played with the idea of joining uh, the non-aligned movement or participating at the Belgrade uh, conference uh, and also uh, uh, the country started this uh, strategy of re- rapprochement uh, with with the Soviet Union um so the chapter is a microhistory uh, which uh, evolves around um, the, 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 the purchase of, of these tractors and follow uh, these tractors from the Soviet Union to Mexico um and uh, and then inside Mexico, uh, telling basically the story, uh, the, the complete story of uh, of the purchase and, and their arrival in Mexico, and the they used uh, uh, the use of those tractors by uh, Mexican Mexican farmers. Um, so this is the story. Uh, now, uh, what are the implications? Uh, of these stories, in, in terms of the general purpose of the book, um, and, and then a couple of points more, more specific. Well, um, as you can see from the contents uh, of the book, um, a, sus- a substantial part of the book it's also focused on Latin American countries' relations uh, with them, uh with the Soviet bloc. Um, That's because uh, we think that uh, uh, when we look at uh, Latin American history as a third world history uh, during the Cold War, uh, this is an important part uh, of that story. As many other uh, third world countries, Latin American countries as well, um, especially during the 1960s and the 1970s, uh, tried to uh, use bipolar tension uh, to their own advantage. Of course, as we show in the introduction, for Latin America, this game was much more difficult uh, because the Western Hemisphere was, uh, with the exception of Cuba, um, was firmly under uh um, or, or, or it was firmly integrated into Washington's sphere of influence. Uh, that said, uh, uh, however, uh, even uh, Latin American country tried to play that game. And this is a small example of a country like Mexico um, um, uh, trying basically uh, to... Uh, to use uh, bipolar opportunities. In this case, uh, mostly uh, with this like uh, very little attempt uh, to diversify uh, economic and political relations. At the same time, uh, as always in the history of Mexico, uh, even these small attempts gave the country more leverage with the United States, um, uh, getting closer to the um, non-aligned movement, getting closer, as, as the chapter shows, to the Soviet Union, um, sort of forced Washington to give concession, to make concessions uh, to, uh, to Mexico. Um, so uh, this is the this is the first point, the first implication of the chapter, uh, showing that uh, even in Latin America uh, there were uh, this attempt to uh, um, interact more substantially with with the Soviet Union and with the Soviet bloc. Um, in the second place, um, this chapter helped helped me to sort of. Um, provincialized as chakrabarti would say uh Washington uh perspective or washington um, yeah Washington perspective um, why I'm saying that because we are um as we show as we debate in the introduction uh, Latin American cold War history is usually read through uh, the lens of Washington's uh foreign policy washington hegemony and in Latin America, and of course, that's a very, very important part uh, of the story. Um, but when we focus exclusively on uh, that perspective, uh, we lose uh, mm, uh, many other insightful uh, points uh, of views. So, uh, focusing on uh, Mexican-Soviet relation, uh, mm, as I was saying, I, 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 I. Uh, Provincialize uh, Washington perspective, and um, actually, we learn uh, we learn new stuff, new things about Mexican trajectory uh, throughout uh, the Cold War. Um, for example, um, the chapter shows that, of course, there was a serious attempt uh, to uh, strengthen relation uh, with with the Soviet Union. Um, as the as the uh, tractor example shows uh, one could uh, s- suspect that um m- the main opposition to this strategy came from the United States if we uh, think uh, using the usual uh u s perspective now uh working with these Perspective working with Soviet sources because the chapter is mainly based on Soviet sources and Mexican sources um, actually showed that uh, the Mexican political elite was um, divided. Uh, there was a sector of the of the PRI um, which uh, was much more conservative. I would say that it, uh, this sector of the PRI was autonomously anti-communist and actually tried to hamper the purchase of the tractor and the use uh, of the tractor. Whilst uh, another part of the political elite, including the president, um, uh, was convinced that uh, it was necessary uh, to uh, diversify commercial economic relations even including economic and, com- uh, and commercial relations uh, with the Soviet, with the Soviet Union. So, what the chapter shows that there the was a need uh, for uh, Washington to oppose uh, this strategy because from inside of the Mexican political elite uh, there was already a strong opposition uh, that uh, made uh, Washington's opposition uh, not necessary. And I think this is very, very interesting. Um, and um, um, on the other hand, um, since the chapter draws uh, so substantially on Soviet sources, it also uh, helped us to understand um, the limits and the difficulties that the Soviet Union had uh, in launching its um, third world uh, policy uh, during the Khrushchev, uh, the Nikita Khrushchev uh, period after 1958, especially after 1958. Because as the chapter shows, even when the Soviet decided that the Third War had to be the main target of its new post Stalinist foreign policy, um, and even when they decided that Mexico was actually an important uh, target. Um, in the context of of this third world uh, foreign policy, they had very very strong um, logistic, financial, um, political uh, political problem. Um, in this sense, the chapter confirms uh, Sanchez Siboni' uh, thesis about um, the we could say. Uh, secondary role that the Soviet Union had during the Cold War. Um, I mean, it was like much easier uh, for the United States in terms of capabilities to intervene in Asia, in the Middle East, in Africa, than the so- than for the Soviet Union to intervene, even at this low level of intervention uh, in uh, Latin, Latin America, simply because they didn't have uh, Enough resources, enough knowledge, um, and and logistic uh, capacity. So I think that the chapter is interesting because um, the centering uh, the, the the point of view uh, and, and and refocusing it on Mexico and in part also on the Soviet Union, we discover new things uh, that we wouldn't be able to observe um, if if we uh, adopted just the usual uh, U.S. uh, foreign policy lens. So this chapter is a good example, uh, as many other chapters, all chapters of the book, um, of uh, the necessity of of, uh, de-emphasizing the U.S. point of view, because we learn more about uh, historical processes, it's not just like a matter of fashion. Or because now it's more fashionable to uh, to work on on, on the third world perspective. It's a matter of uh, uh, improving our capacity to understand uh, political processes uh, during uh, during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And 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 as I was saying, like. This is just my chapter, but most of the chapters of the book um, uh, have this uh, amazing capacity to highlight uh, new and unknown uh, aspect of Latin America trajectory uh, through the Cold War.
0: I think the chapter... Is very interesting because you do really manage to de-emphasize the U.S. point of view and and look at actors that aren't normally studied in a foreign policy perspective. I really appreciate how many different Mexican actors and characters show up in the chapter and how they view this interaction. Uh, Groups of people that are studied by Mexican historians like Ejidatarios, Lazaro Cardenas even shows up for a little bit, uh, different pre-politicians... Uh, I'm more familiar with all those actors, but I was really surprised, mostly by the Soviet behavior in this chapter, where it seems like they're unwilling to make more favorable negotiations with the Mexicans, like trading in cotton rather than cash. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to why, from the Soviet perspective, this deal sort of fell apart.
3: Mm. Well, um, actually, in the end, uh, 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 the reader, the readers will find will find out. Um, the, the, the tractor, after having been stuck for a long time in Tampico port, uh, they are finally moved from there and they are used by by uh, Mexican farmers. Uh, but it, it's true, like a, a very complicated part of the negotiation is that Mexicans uh, want to use what they think are, uh, the Soviet uh, facilitations for this kind of uh, trade uh, negotiation. Basically, it's changing uh, primary goods, in this case, cotton, for machinery, which is the tool that Soviets are using in many parts uh, of, of the Third World. Um, now, uh, going back to Sanchez Siboni's interpretation of the Soviet Union uh, role during the Cold War, we realized that most of the time Soviets were reluctant to use this kind of tools because Soviet economic position was always like uh, uh, weaker uh, than U.S. Uh, position. So in many cases, even even if in theory, in principle, Soviets were apt to use this uh, uh, strategy of exchanging third world primary good, Uh, for uh, their machinery, Uh, in in practice, they were rather reluctant uh, because when doing this kind of uh, commercial negotiation, they were also interested in getting um, hard cash, hard currency, uh, which they desperately uh, needed for their own uh, commercial uh, relations. So here we have a very interesting case of Mexican proposing the Soviets to use Soviet commercial tools, and uh, Soviet diplomats insisting that they don't want uh, uh, Mexican cotton; they want they they want um, hard currency in exchange for these uh, Soviet Soviet tractors. So again. Um, this microhistory tells a lot about uh, the, the transition from theory uh, to practice um, and, uh, and uh, how, in reality, for the Soviet Union, it was uh, difficult uh, to implement uh, these very um, catchy uh, theoretical principles uh, because in theory, they, were, they, they fit very well with third world context. Uh, but then in practice for, for, for the Soviet Union, it was hard to implement them because uh, Soviet economic conditions and the inputs that the negotiators got from, from Moscow, from, 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 in this case from the Ministry of Economy, were quite clear go there and do business try to do the best you can in terms of helping Mexicans because there is also a political aspect of the negotiation but in this case it's clear that um uh, economy um, has the economics uh, and the economic returns um have uh, the upper hand over ideology and and and, and politics so again uh, again changing the perspective uh, we learn quite quite a lot and, and, and new stuffs. Uh, in, in this case I would say uh, the chapter again confirmed uh, the general thesis of Sancho Siboni about this sort of subaltern role that the Soviet Union played uh, during the Cold War because of these difficulties that, that, uh, that they had in dealing with the Third War while at the same time respecting the or fulfilling their economic uh, general uh, objectives um yeah
0: well i think that that answer transitions transitions us really nicely into stella krepp's chapter on brazil and non-alignment where we see uh, another sort of conflict between economic and political visions for the third world Uh, Stella, could you tell us a little bit about Brazil and its role in the non-alignment movement from, not from the sidelines, but maybe not exactly on center stage?
1: Yeah. So in my contribution on Brazil and non-alignment, I address why, although Brazil participates in the non-aligned movement as observer, it never really becomes a full member. And that is similar to other Latin American players we see at the time. And why although they share a lot of the um, goals such as development and and a renegotiation of the global economic order, they really don't become part of this political third world in the 1960s. And this has to do with cultural identity, has to do with race, and obviously also has to do with inter-American politics. So my chapter, in in a way, um, offers a third perspective, you know, Thomas's chapter focuses on the U.S. and Bolivia. Vani on the Soviet Union and Mexico. So the Second World, and in my chapter we discuss this idea of the Third World and where Latin America fits into this. And it gives is a sort of it's not a micro history um, such as Vani's, but it's more of a macro history. Um, really thinking about what is the place of Latin America in the global order at that time. You know, it's a time of monumental changes in the international system. We have liberation movements, we have decolonization, we have guerrilla movements in Latin America, we have Afro Asianism. And so I think the overall question is where do we situate Latin America and Brazil in this shifting geopolitical landscape? And what does that mean for Brazilian and Latin American identity? You know, a region and a country that prides itself um, in its European links, in being sort of semi European, um, and suddenly there's this huge geopolitical um, group, and they need to figure out, um, are they part of it? Are they partners? Are they not partners? Um, And there's a profound ambivalence about this third world project in Brazil at the time, both the sort of more political project Um, As we see in the non-aligned movement, but also sort of part of the bigger economic project that deals more more with um, development, for example, and the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. So in the chapter, I trace the ebbs and flows of sort of Brazilian engagement with non-alignment from the late 1950s, where Brazil sees itself as the India of Latin America, um, as being a sort of moderate force, um, but still... um, independent from U.S. foreign policy. Um, Then in the early 1960s, we see it participating as observer in um, the meetings of the non-aligned movement. Um, It flirts with non-aligned ideas. It also uh, opens up uh, diplomatic relationships with Africa and Eastern European countries. Um, And then when they really become interested in this movement, around about 1962, 1963, um, the movement itself radicalizes. Uh, it shifts much more to the left. And this means for Brazil um, that it becomes less and less attractive because they're fundamentally a very moderate social democratic um, government that, that really that really can't identify with the very anti-colonial, anti-imperial rhetoric um, that comes out of the non-aligned movement. And then, of course, 1964 really puts stop to this story with the Brazilian coup, which happens actually right during the 1964 Cairo conference, um, it's a huge shift in Latin American history, Brazilian coup, but it's obviously also a shift with um, when it comes to foreign policy, because for the military dictatorships, be it in Brazil or in other countries in Latin America, non-alignment is really anathema to them. Um, so overall, this is the, the story, um, but what I wanted to do, what the major arguments of this chapter are, um, is really what we say in the introduction, that we want, uh, I want to write Brazilian or Latin American history as third world history. How do they engage with this uh, third world project? Where do they situate themselves? And why is this there such a profound ambivalence um, with this project? Um, You know, on and on, when I look at the Brazilian sources, uh, they say, well, we're not really part of this. We're aligned with the United States. We're kind of Western. Um, We don't really see ourselves in this group. And yet they also want to take part. So it's a sort of forth and back um, what we see. And I think it speaks to the very complicated um, regional and national identity of Brazil and Latin America, respectively.
0: Yeah, I think this discussion of identity is my favorite part of the chapter, because you bring up both Brazil's myth of racial democracy and racial equality, uh, but at the very same time, priding themselves on being European and Brazil's long diplomatic connections with Portugal, which put it at odds with some of these decolonizing countries. Um there's also moments of very high drama in this chapter as at the non-aligned movement conferences and, and diplomatic events, uh, some some other countries, especially Cuba, it seems are keen on keeping Brazil out of the non-aligned movement so long as it um, fails to behave in a way they find appropriate. Could you tell us a little bit about these other countries' perspectives of Brazil? How did the rest of the third world view them in this non-aligned movement?
1: Um Yes, sure. Um, so um, let's start with uh, the last question. Um, so the more moderate countries in the Non-Aligned Movement, India, Yugoslavia, um, they really want to bring in Brazil into this non-aligned, um, into these non-aligned conferences because it's one of the biggest players in Latin America, and they want more moderate um, states in it. You know, they're afraid that this movement is going to radicalize. Um, So on the one hand, we have sort of supporters um, or advocates for Brazil. Um, And then, of course, we have Cuba. And the relationship between Cuba and Brazil uh, at the time is full of contradictions. Um, Brazil tries to shield Cuba from the really harsh sanctions in the Organization of American States. um, And it tries to even sort of engender a dialogue between the U.S. and Cuba, um at the same time um the cubans are really difficult to deal with they're really difficult uh, partners because they are very um they do mercurial you never know what's going to come out of it um they they don't really support brazil um they cause trouble within brazil by supporting leftist socialist insurgencies um in the northeastern brazil um and what's going on, I think, is actually a fight for what third worldism means in Latin America. So Cuba has a very much more radical view of third worldism and think this is the way Latin American countries should go. And Brazil is obviously a stalwart of sort of the moderate social democratic reformist governments, uh, much more like to Mexico, maybe in some ways, or Argentina. Um, so, so there's I think the importance was also to show that there's lots of different iterations of the third world project, and there's not just one, and it's certainly not Cuba or the Cuban project that's the most important in this story um coming back to how do other countries view it so, for example, um what I also discuss a little bit is sort of um the Brazilian overture to African countries that have recently decolonized. So Brazil opens up um, diplomatic uh, missions in Western African countries. uh, And there's all this rhetoric going on. Oh, we share this history. um, Maybe we can work together. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to decisions, for example, the United Nations on decolonizing and supporting uh, for example, Congo and the Congo Crisis. Then the Brazilians always vote against decolonization because they're on the side of Portugal, which is obviously one of their major political partners. Um, so again, here we see a sort of disconnect between t- these two sort of policies.
0: All of this, I think, really hits on how complicated third wo- writing Latin American history as third world history is, and how rewarding it is because it reveals these connections in these moments and these identity questions, which maybe don't appear as a uh, brightly. Uh, unless this lens is brought to the topic well i really appreciate all of the time that you three have given today for the interview um thank you so much i encourage all of our listeners to go out and buy or check out from the library latin america and the global cold war thank you for your time today stella Vanny, and tom uh have a good day